Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For a taste, if a heart do like a hind, let him seek out Rosalind. If the cat will after kind, so be sure will Rosalind. Winter garments must be lined, so must slender Rosalind. They that reap must sheaf and bind, then to cart with Rosalind. <laughs> sweetest nut hath sourest rind, such a nut is Rosalind. He that sweetest rose will find, must find love's prick and Rosalind. This is the very false gallop of verses. Why do you infect yourself with them? <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the third episode, Act 3 of The Plays the Thing. This is our discussion of As You Like It, of Shakespeare's As You Like It. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined, hello, by Heidi White. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing great, Tim. The sun is out. I got six rolls of toilet paper at the store this morning. I got five pounds of flour. I feel like a superhero. Well done. Thank you. I, I have a friend who owns a burrito shop back in Atlanta, and he's apparently passing out with every burrito a free roll of toilet paper. Oh man, what a great, what a great guy! Did yeah. he have to sell like his soul to the devil or something? I think he well, sold his soul paper. to the devil. <laughs> it's so intense out there. I, I mean, I know we've talked about this a lot, but man, these shelter-in-place orders are going around the country and it, I, it, is a fa- it, it, is a, it is fodder for lots of jokes, but we're also taking this very seriously as well. So, um, But I was in line at Walmart. Walmart. I've, I've, never, I've never thought this day would come. Like I, I can't even describe to you the surreal feeling of like getting up, getting in the car, at 6.45 to go to Walmart and wait in line to buy toilet paper. I'm like, is this, like, this is the end of days. So. <laughs> and so, okay, wh- why, I-, I know that everybody is asking this, but the toilet paper, hand sanitizer, I understand, foodstuffs, I understand, 
But the toilet paper, can you walk me through why there's been such a run on toilet paper? So I want to say, here's what I, here's how I want to respond to that question. I have no idea. It's the psychology of that's completely unknown to me because I am this like really sane, balanced person <laughs> who could not possibly understand why anyone went on to stockpile toilet paper. That's what but I want to say. people say, right? but <laughs> other people tell me. No, this is me. Like I'm, conf- this is my on air confession. So I, I have it. at my house a big pack of like quadruple rolled toilet paper that's equivalent to like 72 rolls. And yet I okay. get up at six in the morning to go to Walmart and buy a <laughs> pack of toilet paper. So, and here's why I think, cause I have the same <laughs> question. I really, in my defense, I really did need flour. Lucy's been baking every day and we're kind of dwindling and I don't want her to not be able to bake cause that's what she's been doing. And, and I make bread every day. So anyway, I didn't need flour and it's hard to find. And so I did actually have to get up and get some. And I wanted to see if I can get a bag of rice Um, because that's disappeared from the American marketplace as well. Wait, rice has? No, you can't buy rice anywhere. You're kidding me. How do I not know this? So what's funny funny about this and all of the stay-at-home moms who listen to this program are like, yeah, I know. But like you can buy fresh fruits and vegetables, produce, like no problem. Like I go every couple of days to get avocados and uh, lemons and salad and all things that we need, fresh fruits and vegetables available in abundance, like no problem. NBD. Right, right. But anything imperishable, people are stockpiling because they're, what, once these shelter in place orders go all the way around the nation, you know, people aren't sure, am I going to be able to just make a meal at my house? I see. Um, so anyway, the toilet paper thing, I just cannot imagine like, a, I feel like I could dig in the pa- back of the pantry. I feel like I could yeah. forage for food, but like mm-hmm. going to the bathroom like that. No, yeah. not for that. Yeah. So I just, and then, and then also I, just in general stockpile of toilet paper. Like if there's going to be a storm, I buy it. I always have a lot of toilet paper at my house. Um, and we have overnight guests and I don't like to, I don't like to like run to the store for one thing. So I do tend to have a lot of stuff in my house. So I get the toilet paper thing, especially because now nobody can get it and everybody knows that. And so then you're like, I want to be one of the people who can get it. It's like a challenge. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So here I am at 6:45 waiting in line at Walmart with the Heidi, would you would you perhaps qualify yourself as a single issue hoarder? I don't know if it's possible. It's a, I don't want that to be true. Like I said I really want to like be very clinical about it. I'm really not sure. I went to Walmart for toilet paper because I needed toilet paper, but that's not <laughs> true. It's a lie. I get it. So I salute you. God be with you, all of you people out there, especially the people with big families of like six kids and actually just need 48 double rolls of toilet paper to get through Tuesday. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So, so Heidi, um, I think it's nice to have like a little time capsule of recording these shows and kind of making reference to the coronavirus. So I, for me, this is one week after 
kind of this officially began. We, uh, we just completed our first week because for me, I think it was exactly, wait, is my timeline off? Has it been two weeks? Because I remember I was at a restaurant with a friend of mine and the server said, we are not open tomorrow. And my friend and I were just slightly aghast. You're, oh, wow, this is really real. You guys are not opening tomorrow. What was that last Sunday night or was that two weeks ago? I think it was probably last Sunday because we went to church last Sunday. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great way to mark the time. Okay, that makes that makes sense. But it also is saying something about my state if I, I am mistaking one week for two. It just blur. It is a blurred line at this point. <laughs> so yeah, but the snow is melted. I have good. I I do have rice. I can make bread. So. Okay, good. Yep. Good. Yep. How about you? Order is not completely lost. I've got everything I think that I need. Good. Um, Including I the complete got... works of William Shakespeare. Exactly. And you know what? That's exactly the segue that David typically provides on this show that I was struggling just now <laughs> to provide. I was Thank on it. Thank you for doing yep. that. You were on it. You were on it, Heidi. Um, so the top of the show, we played a recording of... Um, touchstone from act three scene three uh mocking some of this poetry that orlando has been writing and hanging on trees and it's it's pretty bad poetry if a heart do lack a hind let him seek out rosalind if a cat will after kind so be sure will rosalind um it's pretty bad poetry and orlando tells Rosalind that he thinks it's bad poetry, but she doesn't care, Heidi. She doesn't care because she's smitten. So this act is kind of the place where there are a few different couples that are all growing closer together. Our chief couple, Rosalind and Orlando, finally meet in the woods and... But there was other, a couple of other couples. We see Touchstone later on has fallen in love with this farm girl. And we see um, Silvius, the shepherd, has also fallen in love. With all three of these couples, they're kind of in crises. Right. They're, all three of them are unable to kind of really actually join together. And I think the most amusing of them, of course, is our lead couple, Rosalind in Orlando. But Heidi, I wanted to ask you about the character of Orlando. We we hear in the scene some of these dreadful poems that he leaves for Rosalind, carved in the barks of trees or hanging on sheaves on the branches of trees. And we kind of fell in love with Orlando in Act One scene, whatever it is, three, four, five, because he's overwhelmed by a wrestler and yet somehow he manages to become victorious. And there's something about him that we can root for him as an underdog, but he strikes me as a very unique character because he's not a terribly capable fellow, is he? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. He's, he's, and we see it in this lack of quality poetry that he's that he's writing and leaving Rosalind, which he has to kind of force her name into a mispronunciation, Rosalind. Mm-hmm. What's your yes. what's your impression of him? <laughs> yeah, Orlando is 
to me one of a long line of Shakespearean comedic heroes who is in every way unworthy of the delightful woman who is uh-huh. given to him in the play. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so curious about that. It's one of the things that when I'm researching or teaching comedies, I'll just kind of read up on different uh, scholarly interpretations of the Shakespearean hero because it's Shakespeare is more than capable of crafting wonderful masculine and feminine lead characters, right? Like his tragic heroes are just so compelling, so compelling. And somehow when we get to the comedies, he swap, he swaps it. Isn't that interesting to you? Like it's the, it is yeah. the female lead characters in the comedies who are almost always the, the crowd pleasers, the one that capture our hearts, the ones that we're rooting for. Uh, right. And, and who have these very, um, you know, compelling depth of character, even though they're in the comedies, they're not farcical, the female characters. Rosalind, in fact, is, I know multiple people who have named their daughters after Rosalind. I know she's David's favorite Shakespearean character. Um, I didn't know that. Yes. And that's why he loves this play so much because of Rosalind. Um, Our reviews editor at Forma Journal, he's got a little baby girl named after Rosalind. And um, so, but Orlando, to your point, is he's lovesick. He can't, he doesn't have the education. The education has been denied to him and he has never been able to assert himself and throw off the yoke of his, of his, um, older brother, uh, Oliver. And he's now just kind of wandering around the woods, writing bad poetry and dedicating it to his lady. Who's more than worthy of him. And, and, and there you are. He's strong. And that's a good thing. Like you actually do want a, a physically strong and handsome lead right. male character. There's that's that's a good thing about him. But in, intellectually, he's not her equal, which somewhat goes to character development because he's been denied the education that he should have had. Uh, but a lot of it is just somehow there's these unequal marriages uh, or unequal lovers within the Shakespearean canon as lead characters in a comedy. Um, right. So I don't know. What do you make of that? Have you ever played one of these characters? I played Orlando in a scene from this act when Orlando and Rosalind um, meet in the woods, and you know she she dressed as a man proposes that he woos her. So I've played that scene, but never, but not the whole play. And I honestly, I kind of, I struggled to find him a little bit because. Mm-hmm. He's he's clever in some ways, but in some ways he's just not. He's just not very clever. And you're right. I think that fits his character. He hasn't had the sort of education that his brother has. His brother's withheld it from him. And that's part of the reason that we're kind of on this journey with him is that he's seeking we, – we want to write that along with him. Right. I agree. But I also think it's not a complete enough answer because Shakespeare is – I mean – to your point, he's about that you made originally and in leading into the conversation. He's more than capable of making and creating a character 
who is worthy of Rosalind and somehow he right. just doesn't. And, and he's got, yeah. and that, that happened in 12th night. Uh, it definitely happens in Merchant of Venice. Uh, I think it even happens in Midsummer Night's Dream, although the lovers are a little more interchangeable there, but there is something about these high comedies in which the man is not worthy of the, the delightful, strong, compelling lead female character. And I right. don't know, you know, it's, it goes, is it a weakness or is it just kind of another commentary? Uh, I don't know. What do you make of that? I've wondered if it's a commentary. And I've also wondered if it's um, just a way of Shakespeare to please his audience. I mean, both men and women, of course, are attending the plays. And I suspect that having a female heroine during the Elizabethan era was not unheard of, but I suspect it was probably also uncommon. And to have Rosalind is clearly the superior in almost every way to Orlando. I'm sure that that delighted a a lot of audiences. I, I have a feeling it was something they didn't get to see very often. Fortunately, we get to see it in our theater or movies often enough, but I don't know that it was as commonplace back then. Right. And Shakespeare knew many, many things. And one thing he knew really, really well was how to, how to make an audience happy, how to make them laugh, how to turn them and yeah. And how to please them and to kind of send couples home with something to wrangle over uh, Mm -hmm. after they saw the play. Oh, that's a good point. I like that. Yeah. Hey, I, I I thought of a question I wanted to ask you. Let's just imagine um, in a few years, Lucy goes off to college and she uh, wants you to meet the boy that she's been seeing off at college. And the boy that she's been seeing is Orlando. Mm. What's that conversation like? Oh, man. That's a good question. A really good question. Because... There is some, <laughs> to take it down to, you know, take this particular play and take it into more of an existential or human question of mm-hmm. everyday life. It's a good question because you do see that most, many, many times the stereotype for a reason is that ladies will mature at a faster right. rate, kind of yeah. get to full potential quicker than than their male counterparts. And sometimes that's true. Um, and, and Scott, who that's my husband for our listeners, he has this whole theory about how a man really becomes a man when he has to, as one, one of the ways that a man steps into fully owning himself as a man is in providing for a woman. And, and that, that like kind of sparks creativity. There's lots of ways to get there, but for a lot of men, this is true. It sparks his creativity. It sparks his work ethic and, and all these things. And so I, I would hope that I would hope that I would enter a conversation with that mindset, but it would be hard. It would be really hard to see my little girl kind of falling for a guy who doesn't seem to be worthy of her intellectually or in, even in, even in wit, I see in this play particularly, like uh-huh. she just far excels him. She just outpaces him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She really does. She's multiple steps ahead of him. And that's not even always true 
with, I would say even in Twelfth Night, Duke Orsino, although he's he's witty at least, even though he's uh-huh. not even even though he's kind of stuck in his head and he has to be brought out, but he at least has an equal wit to Viola, and I don't see that with Orlando. That would be hard. Would it change? I can imagine two scenarios. Um, Lucy meets this Orlando character her freshman year. And he's in this Orlando is 18, 19. He's still kind of like becoming a man. And then Lucy meets him her senior year when he's 22, 23. And hopefully he's kind of like caught up with himself a little bit. If she... This is kind of a long, elaborate question. Does your advice to her differ based on Orlando's age? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. Uh, And I, you know, and that's the, I I don't think this was an intended, um, like an author intent issue, but I think sometimes these these comedies kind of get to this this question in modernity of the development or the education of a man. And that that's one of the big questions right now is like what's happening to the boys? People are mm. talking about that a lot. Yeah. Um are they getting what they need? You know, are they learning how there there's such a there's there's such a conversation around masculinity as being somewhat inherently toxic. Some people mm-hmm. would just say masculinity is toxic and some would say there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And but that I I don't think that that's an author intent issue, but I think we do see that with Orlando because he is uneducated to manhood and thus he suffers and but there's something about him that Rosalind loves anyway. And I think that, you know, that goes to the heart of Shakespeare's uh, portrayal of love in the comedies is that love is something that happens to you. You're a passive recipient of the curse or the blessing of love. Right, right. Like love happens to you. Right. And then you go crazy. And and you just lose your mind. You become like a lunatic. And and we see that with these three different couples. And Rosalind is the one who seems the most in control of it. But even by the end of this act, she's throwing a fit because because Orlando hasn't showed up, shown up mm-hmm. for their conversation. Mm-hmm. And so she's even lost in the lunacy of love. Yes. Even yes. as the strongest character in the play. And that is intentional. Shakespeare is telling us something about uh-huh. love. Heidi, I was thinking last night about the metaphors that we use for love are so often violent metaphors. Mm-hmm. I fell into love. Mm-hmm. My heart was broken. I was love struck. Yeah. And I, surely yeah. some of that is love sick, right? Great example. I think some of this is honestly, it's part of the legacy of speaking the English language in which our language has been so shaped by Shakespeare. Yeah. So shaped by, um, also shaped by the Bible. But I think especially our, our language surrounding romance 
is shaped in part by Shakespeare. But I also think like, no, it's actually kind of painful. Romantic love is, there's yeah. all sorts of kind of like potential heartache and heartache associated with it. And so it does feel internally like oftentimes like a violent act. And I think Shakespeare just captures that. We talked last week about how um, love is both an ordering and a disordering influence. Mm -hmm. yep. And I think especially at this part in the play, we're seeing its disordering effects because the couples are sort of at this point misaligned with each other. Yep. And for one reason or another, um, the shepherd Silvius and this farm girl that he is in love with are completely misaligned. She actually ends up by the end of the act kind of falling for Rosalind, thinking that Rosalind is a man. Mm -hmm. Rosalind and Orlando can't get together, even though they do meet and have this kind of like sparkle, but they're misaligned at this point. And we also see that Touchstone has fallen for someone and Touchstone kind of falling under the influence, excuse me, um, of Jacquees decides to postpone his marriage vows. But even that relationship with this farm girl is, it, 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 <laughs> it is not mature in any way. It is not a mature relationship at right. all. Right. Well, and I'm glad you brought those up because I find the three, you know, I, I find these three couples to be um, so interesting within the context of Shakespeare as a liter literary craftsman and a commentator on culture, as well as those existential questions of what does it mean to fall in love and is it ordering or disordering and all those things. You know, Shakespeare's always doing something. He's always kind of poking fun at something and um, in the comedies and then also while poking fun at it, also kind of commenting on it and inviting the audience into it. And so with these three couples, it's also really, before I dig into that too and ask you some questions about it, in act three, that the disorder comes to a peak, right? Like, and, and, and that's, right. we're looking for a turning point in the play. Uh, we're looking for things to be really kind of cluttered up and entangled so that acts four and five can untangle them and bring us to our satisfying end. Yeah. Um, and so this, this particular act, I think is a bit disorienting, um, purposefully so. And there's, it's a, it's a act of conversations, not action. You know, it's like a lot, like the, the action of the play is happening within these dual conversations. Yes. Um, two people talking to each other and uh, like multiple times throughout the act. And um, so those, the three couples that we have are Orlando and Rosalind. And then you have, and those are like the high plot characters, the main characters of high social standing who are in mm -hmm. love and there's an obstacle to their love. And then you have these low plot characters, lower class in the hierarchy of Elizabethan society. And, uh, but their, their plots as in, as is classic Shakespeare mirror the theme of the high plot, although the action is different. So right. you have Silvius and Phoebe. Um, and, and this is kind of a, I see in, in their interactions a commentary on the literary tradition of courtly love, of Silvius as this 
scorned lover huh. who's trying to woo the unattainable lady. Yeah. But Shakespeare's mocking it. He's distorting or, or subverting that ideal because Phoebe's not pretty and she is just not, you can't understand why Silvius would like her. Yeah. And she's cruel to him. <clears throat> Excuse me, Logan, get that cough out of there. She's cruel to him, but not in a, a way that is, uh, it's, it's not like Guinevere <laughs> or, or Queen right. Eleanor. It's not like, right. you know, this beautiful highborn lady who has, uh, who's trying to uphold the courtly ideal. She's honestly just mean and you don't like her and you yeah. can't understand, but Silvius is the courtly lover and he is so much more in love with his own ideal of love that he can't actually see the unattractive nature of his lady. On the other hand, then you have Touchstone and Audrey, who I see in the literary tradition are mocking the pastoral ideal and that Audrey is supposed to be this simple shepherdess, right? The simple milkmaid or the simple milkmaid right. or shepherdess that is actually just, you know, delightful and wonderful, but she's just not smart because she has no education. So she doesn't get it. And so what I think Shakespeare's doing here is saying, do you really want the pastoral ideal? You're just going to get some simple woman who's like, who doesn't get your jokes. Right. <laughs> right. And so it is funny and it is, and it does kind of draw you in and Shakespeare's saying, okay, you guys want a pastoral couple? You want a courtly couple? Here you go. Do you think in, he's highlighting by juxtaposition, Rosalind in Orlando is kind of like maybe having the best chance at this. Yeah. Say more about that. Well, it just occurred to me because I had not, I had not seen what you just described this kind of inversion of courtly love and pastoral love. Um, it seems like Rosalind in Orlando, it's a pastoral setting for the play, but it's, they don't strike me that they're, um, Oh gosh. I, I want to say something. I'm just going to say it. They don't strike me as types as much as the other two couples are. Right. And I think because they just get more time on stage, they're less, they're not two dimensional. They're not designed to be two dimensional. They're designed to be three dimensional and we get enough time with them that they can be three dimensional, but the other two are kind of types. I'm convinced by what you said that they're um, types that fit into these kind of two different modes of, romance, the pastoral, the courtly. And Shakespeare's kind of, you know, winking at us while he's, you know, poking at these ideals. But with Rosalind and Orlando, he gives them more time. They're not types. They actually have, it's, um, we see something like a full, albeit very peculiar, romance happening. An actual courtship is happening as they kind of get to know each other better. Um, we do read we do read Orlando's bad poetry and we learn a lot about him. Rosalind gets more stage time than anyone else and we learn lots about her, where she comes from, her incredible wit, her passions. So yeah, maybe Shakespeare is holding them up as something despite all the the peculiarities that go into their courtship in the Forest of Arden. There's still something to be admired about them, deeply admired about them. Yes, I agree completely. I do think that 
you are we're always supposed to take the high plot lovers very seriously. We, we are for them. They are quality people. They belong together. They need to get rid of the obstacle of their love. In this case, primogenitor for Orlando, his lack of education, uh, and the evil bad uncle hunting down Rosalind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we have the, there's, that's where we arrive back all the time at the, uh, the green world setting versus the city setting. And how are we going? That's one of the threads of disorder in the play. How are we going to resolve that? Somehow yeah. you just know they're not, they don't belong in the green world, right? This, they're not moving to the forest forever. They are going right. there temporarily until they can resolve these disharmonies and then take that harmony back into the city. And, yes. um, but we're not sure how that's going to happen yet to your point. But I agree, they are, uh, you know, you can kind of laugh at Sylvius and Phoebe the whole time. You know, you want him to be together. You want him to get what he wants. You want Touchstone and Audrey. Well, you know, Touchstone and Audrey, that's a different story. Yeah, that is Um, a little bit of a different story. Because they're just kind of like unattractive, both of them. Uh Uh, But still, you know that lovers belong together. So that's going to happen. But Orlando and Rosalind are like rooting for them. Yeah. And... And that, and then you arrive again, how is that going to happen? It's not going to happen because Orlando is wandering about like a space cadet in the forest, posting things on trees. So then again, it comes back to Rosalind. Like the, the harmony of the play is dependent on this character and, and what she does. And that's very clear from the beginning. And so the thing that she does is interesting to me and it's cross-dressing. That is always so intriguing to me in plays. Shakespeare does it a lot especially with these really, like with Viola, these wonderful, compelling uh, female characters in a high comedy are always dressing up like guys. And that's just, so you have to ask yourself why, right? Yeah. And so there's this, I've talked about this at, in Circe Talks before and probably on this podcast before. There's, you're on the lookout for characters that can cross hierarchical boundaries within a mm. play. And Rosalind in this play is one of them. And we, they're, they're often called boundary crossing characters. Um, and Viola and Rosalind are our classic examples of a boundary crossing character. Although we do find them not just in the comedies. Henry V is one, Prince Hal is one, right? He dresses up and he looks like a, uh, uh, one of his soldiers, and he goes out and comforts them before the battle. Whenever you see a character crossing what would have been a strict hierarchical line, like dressing up like a lowborn character, a woman dressing up as a man, you're looking at a character who can move between the rigid stereotypes of the Elizabethan time. Right. And then that character is going to bring some kind of harm of disorder resulting in harmony within the play. And that's, you see, with Rosalind. In this play, she dresses up like a man, and it's interesting, right? Because she, it's fascinating, like this interaction yeah. between the two of them. I'm curious, what do you make of it? Like, what do you see in this boundary crossing? These boundary crossing scenes. I'm I'm going to get a little historical speculative for a second, Heidi, and this is going to actually tie in. We were talking about the virus earlier. Um, I'm going to talk about the bubonic plague during Shakespeare's time. Um, so the plague hits London a few different times during Shakespeare's life. And we recognize that as 
a great harm to that society. And it was the same harm, or at least the same kind of species of harm done to Europe in the 1300s when massive amounts of Europe died. There's a strange sort of side effect that came out of these plagues, which is this. The society that the plagues hit were very, as you said, hierarchical. There were people at the top, people in the middle, people at the bottom. And movement between those different areas was relatively uncommon. But now think about this. When you have a large number of sicknesses and death, and you have tasks that have to be completed by society, well, when you lose a lot of your society, you create a much more fluid structure. You create kind of the scenario in which people can move from lower rung to middle rung or to upper rung. And because, let's just say, perhaps this is a, the best example, but um, if the town's blacksmith dies and there's only one blacksmith, well, guess what? You can't do without having a blacksmith. Right. So now you create a scenario in which the skill that a blacksmith brings to his town to shot horses, bits, all the kind of metal works that a town needs. Well, now someone can step into that role and there's a little bit of supply and demand happens. This new blacksmith learns his skill and also recognizes that he um, is needed more than he would have been five years earlier, perhaps he has the opportunity to bring on someone else and to apprentice that young person into becoming a blacksmith and to pay him a wage and to keep a little bit of that wage. And so he's accumulating wealth. And with accumulation of wealth comes rise in social standing. Right. So I wonder if part of the reason that Shakespeare, aside from just like the great theatrical joy of seeing someone that the audience knows is a woman portraying herself as a man. I mean, it's just so fun. But I wonder if there's something else going on is that his society kind of recognized the dilemma that a lot of people were in who were low born, but because of large numbers of death, now had the ability to climb to be someone that they hadn't been five years earlier, to be someone that their family had never been, had not trained them to be. And now they're kind of thrust into a situation where they kind of have to fake it or make it. They right. kind of have to convey themselves as someone that they're not. I just think that it adds a whole other layer to these characters that are, as you say, kind of like, migrating between these hierarchical boundaries. Golly, that sounds like such a, like, I just sound like a postmodern critic but that are migrating between hierarchical boundaries. <laughs> this is like something I never want to say again, even though actually it, it, suits, it suits the case. For the time it absolutely being. suits the case. And I, but the difference between Shakespeare and our postmodern writers is that Shakespeare is inviting us to see it as harmony, not deconstruction. Yeah. It's moving toward a harmony. Yes. Right. And that, like Rosalind is not, and and that's why I think this this question of love is the proper context for this kind of comedy, like this kind of hilarity, because 
Rosalind is not trying to break down any social barriers. She wants to go, what she wants is to be married to the man she loves and to go back to the world she belongs in. And, but in order to do that, she has to migrate between these social hierarchical barriers and, and, and she's, she's not making any kind of statement. And I think that's the problem with modern Shakespearean criticism is that they look at this play and what they see is some kind of like homoerotic contemplation. And Shakespeare is saying that it doesn't matter if you fall in love with a man or a woman and, um, and it's feminist because in, in like the, the true kind of toxic feminist kind of way that, that Rosalind has to reject her femininity in order to be happy and blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't see that in the play. What I see is Rosalind saying, I want to be with the man I love. Mm. And, and so the, the movement is from disorder to order, not order to disorder. And that's right. the opposite of a deconstruction, a deconstructionalist postmodern critic who says there is no such thing as order. Everything is constantly following apart and moving from order to disorder. Shakespeare is saying we're moving from the disorder to order and the motivation is love. That's profound. Yeah. I've talked about Heidi on other shows the sort of structural backdrop, um, the actual backdrop of the play in Shakespeare's time. And I think that the, the physical backdrop kind of, it, it echoes what you're saying. So in Shakespeare's day, we would have seen behind the actor probably a painted vision of the cosmos which would have included something like um, an ordered picture of London or the city in which um, the play is taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, Below the stage, accessible through a trap door, is the cellarage. The cellarage was also nicknamed Hell. Hmm. And then you have, of course, the action of the play is happening kind of on this terrestrial plane. It's happening on Earth. It's happening in this time. But the backdrop between the, the, the action happens kind of staged between this heavenly picture of the cosmos and the cellarage below. So you have this sort of three-tiered universe that is operating in some way just visually in a harmonious fashion. And so especially this is really striking for me when I think about some of the more nihilistic sounding lines, maybe from Richard II mm-hmm. or even from Hamlet. Um, this good promontory you know, seems to me of no worth. I'm misquoting there, but that's the gist. Um, there, is, there is a sort of ironic juxtaposition of those words that sound nihilistic with the actual order of the stage, which is anything but nihilistic. Right. And I think that you're right. I think that Shakespeare's plays, maybe with a couple of exceptions, maybe Lear is an exception, um, there is a return to a harmonious order. Even the dramas, the tragedies that end with 
a tyrant being overthrown, we see the rightful ruler stepping in behind the overthrown ruler and restoring harmony and restoring order. Right, right. Um, well, and there's a moral order, to your point. There's a moral order within the tragedies that is, um, you know, there's a little bit in Lear, I think, with Cordelia's death that um, that is truly, like, absurdly tragic do you know like Mm. but but in general there is there is a sense in which the right people are rewarded and the right people die yes right uh within within the society exactly as you've said that's represented by the the structure of the stage which is a picture of the cosmos and and shakespeare's not afraid to challenge uh conventions but i think what's happening is that he's comparing the conventions to the larger order of the cosmos and saying these aren't necessary right like the the, the primogenitor for example is is a is a tradition or a convention is a part of the existing social order that is not righteous compared to the structure of the cosmos mm. And so that gets cut off on the chopping block in this play. And there's, yeah. there's, uh, and you can see that in the tragedies and in the comedies that in disordering the world, he's doing so in order to bring it back into the intended harmony. Whether yes. he's, whether he's doing that out of, uh, a, a, a truly Christian ideal, I'm not sure. I hope so. But I think it's, that's, it's what I'm seeing is a commitment to the proper ethical and moral order of a, a transcendent cosmos. Heidi, I want to um, I want to play a scene from this act. The scene we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, the meeting between Orlando and Rosalind in the woods. This is the first time that they meet after they've had to flee into the forest. It's a longer clip. It's probably going to be about four minutes long. Um, but I, this is one of those scenes that is so fun to play. But if someone at home is just reading it, and it might be a little bit easy to kind of gloss over. But I just wanted to play it. Um, and, and the version that I'm going to play is from one of the BBC productions that they did in the 1980s. I recommend these so highly, these BBC versions. Most of them are accessible via YouTube for free. Some of them via... This one is uh, available through Amazon. I think if you're an Amazon Prime member, you don't have to pay for it. Uh, And Helen Mirren is Rosalind. So we know Helen Mirren is still... um, acting today, a delightful actress. And we heard a little clip of her when we did The Tempest because she was actually cast in one of the versions of a recent version of uh, The Tempest as Prospero. Hmm. So I'd like to, I'd like to play this um, and listen in. So here we go, Heidi. Let's listen to this scene. Where dwell you, pretty youth? Uh, with this shepherdess. My sister, here in the skirts of the forest, like fringe upon the petticoat. Are you native of this place? 
Alas, the Kona you see dwell where she is kindled. Your accent is something finer than you could purchase in so removed a dwelling. I uh, have been told so of many, and indeed an old religious uncle of mine taught me to speak, who was in his youth an inland man, one that knew courtship too well, for there he fell in love, and I've heard him read many lectures against it, and indeed I thank God I am not a woman. To be touched with so many giddy offences as he hath generally taxed their whole sex withal. Can you remember any of the principal evils that he laid to the charge of women? None principal. They were all like one another as halfpence are, the one fault seeming monstrous till his fellow fault came to match it. I prithee recount some of them. No. I will not cast away my physic, but upon those that are sick. There is a man haunts this forest that abuses our young plants with carving uh, uh, Rosalind on their barks, hangs odes upon hawthorns, elegies upon brambles, all forsooth deifying the name of Rosalind. If I could meet that fancy monger, I would give him some good counsel, for he hath the quotidian of love upon him. I am he that is so love-shaked. I pray you, tell me your remedy. There is none of my uncle's marks upon you. He taught me how to know a man in love, in which cage of rushes I am sure you are not prisoner. What were his marks? A lean cheek, which you have not. A blue eye and sunken, which you have not. An unquestionable spirit, which you have not. A beard neglected which you have not, but I pardon you for that, for simply your having in beard is a younger brother's revenue. Then your hose should be ungartered, your bonnet unbanded, your sleeve unbuttoned, your shoe untied, everything about you demonstrating a careless desolation. But you are no such man. You are rather point device in your accoutrements, as loving yourself than seeming the lover of any other. Uh, youth, I would I could make thee believe I love. Me? Believe it? You may as soon make her that you love believe it, which I warrant she is apter to do than to confess that she does. That is one of the points in which women still give the lie to their consciences. But in good sooth, are you he that hangs the verses on the trees wherein Rosalind is so admired? Swear to the youth, by the white hand of Rosalind, I am that he. That unfortunate he. But are you so much in love as your rhymes speak? Neither rhyme nor reason can express how much. And I tell you, deserves as well a dark house and a whip as madmen do. And the only reason they are not so punished and cured is that the lunacy is so ordinary the whippers are in love too. Yet, I profess curing it by counsel. Did you ever cure any so? Yes, one and in this manner. He was to imagine me his love, his mistress, and I set him every day to woo me, at which time would I, being but a moonish youth, <laughs> grieve, be effeminate, changeable, longing and liking, proud, fantastical, full of 
tears full of smiles, for every passion something and for no passion truly anything, as boys and women are for the most part cattle of this colour. Now like him, now loathe him, then entertain him, then forswear him, now weep for him, then spit at him, that I drave my suitor from his mad humour of love to a living humour of madness, <laughs> which was to forswear the full stream of the world and live in a nook merely monastic. And thus did I cure him. And so will I take it on me to wash your liver as clean as a sound sheep's heart, that there shall not be one spot of love in it. I would not be cured, you. I would cure you if you would but call me Rosalind, and come to my coat every day and woo me. Now, by the faith of my love, I will. Tell me where it is. Go with me to it and I will show it you. And by the way, you shall tell me where in the forest you live. Come, will you go? With all my heart, good youth. Nay. You must call me Rosalind. Nay, but you must call me Rosalind. I love that scene, Heidi. Yeah, it's a. I love that scene. scene. And it's so, that's one of those where seeing a performance of Shakespeare just makes such a big difference because when you see Rosalind dressed as a man, convincing him. No, call me Rosalind. There's something just so delightful about that. It's perfect. It is so, it's just so good. I love this whole, this whole conceit that he does here. This whole trope of the, especially considering that the actor for Rosalind would have been a young man in Shakespeare's day. So it's a man playing a woman dressed as a man trying to woo a man. Yes, yes. So good. So complicated, so complicated. Um, I love the lines uh, from Rosalind that she proposes that the solution to the madness of love is to basically drive the lover crazy and to get him into a different form of madness. So, um, but being a moonish youth, grieve, be a, this is kind of like part of her curriculum, or excuse me, his curriculum to him, to Orlando, is to be effeminate, changeable, longing and liking, proud, fantastical, apish, shallow. And so all of these things that, that the Moonish youth is going to do with the end result being, I drove my suitor from his mad humor of love into a living humor of madness. Right. It's like the only solution. It's just so good. Yep. You just have to go crazy. You just got to go crazy. Love will make you crazy. So, And the only way to heal it is by acting, is like taking on a different form of crazy. Yep. That's right. It's those identity shifts. I I just think if I were, I've, I've never taught this play full confession. Have you? No, I've never taught it, but, um, as you do this podcast, you know, I always think about, I'm sure you're thinking about how you would stage it and I'm thinking yeah. about how I would teach it. Um, and, and I think what I would do is pick these couples, do talk some about at least in this act and talk some about 
uh, you know, the pastoral tradition, the Corley love tradition, blah, blah, blah. What do you see? Even if you don't use those terms, kind of right. say, what is the dynamic between these lovers? And what do you think, uh, you know, what, what might Shakespeare want us to see here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that, and I would, that, but this scene that you just played between Orlando and Rosalind, it's bottomless. Like this would be just a really interesting conversation with over the, over the dinner table or in a classroom. So when I was in Colorado, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was just on the crime and punishment podcast that I directed a little Shakespeare showcase for a classical school in Colorado. And this was one of the scenes that we did because it's just so fun to act. So um, our Rosalind and Orlando are up on stage. And one of the things that I really encouraged the young woman who's playing Rosalind to do was to like overemphasize how masculine she is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every time that she is, um, you know, making a point, what if she kind of like slugged him? What if she kind of slugged Orlando? Because that's what, that's what guys do. They kind of punch each other, you know? So, and it was so fun because here was a young woman trying to be a man, trying to kind of emulate these sort of like masculine bonding tactics by kind of like slugging him in the arm and, you know, kind of punching him in the kidney. And, and so, and she loved it. She loved it. And she also, those, those lines where um, you have none of the marks uh, of love that my, you know, my, this, this man described to me, you, uh, you don't have a blue eye, a sunken cheek. In fact, you're kind of well-dressed, your point device and your accoutrements. So another opportunity for my actress to kind of, manhandle Orlando, you know, when she's looking for his blue eye and his sunken cheek, well, she has to put her hand on his jaw and kind of like twist his head around and do it in kind of like, you know, a way that shows no kind of general regard for his physical well-being. Because that's what guys do. They just don't you right. know, care about those sorts of things. That's yeah. Cute. That's it was so a lot fun. of fun. It was a lot of fun. That is fun. Hey, Heidi, we've been going for an hour. Um, Anything that you would like to say in closing? Anything that you're going to look for in the last two acts of our comedy as you like it? Well, I think I'm going to be looking for, now that we've kind of reached the peak moment of disorder, I'm looking for within the next, you know, hopefully in Act 4 there'll be some kind of of uh, movement towards harmony. Yeah. Probably not all the way, uh, but something. Um, are we? Are you anticipating what is going to happen to sort of overturn the wrong that's been done at the top of the play? Yes, yeah. I am, and to bring the lovers together, um, and to c- kind of come down from that peak of madness and ecstasy into a more settled affection. Yes. Yes. I'm looking for the same things. Yeah. Um, Remember everybody that you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the close reads discussion group and on Instagram and at Twitter at close reads pods and via email by writing to close reads podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget 
our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Uh, this has been a great episode. I'm looking forward to our last two acts, Heidi. Thanks for yep, joining me. Me too. Yes, no, thanks. This is fun. I am Tim McIntosh. Uh, thank you to Heidi White and for the Circe Podcast Network for making this podcast possible. Uh, thank you also to our listeners and enjoy as you like it. Happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.